Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Shares for beginners. To be blunt, I mean, inflation just hasn't mattered for 40 years. So the personal experience of, you know, most investors, including myself in today's market is that, you know, we haven't invested through a through an inflationary environment. So, you know, we really do have to look back into historical scenarios and situations and try and get a sense of, well, you know, what asset classes and work within that environment and then within what equities, what, you know, what sort of works. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. There are many ways to skin a cat and many ways to invest in the share market. There's ETFs, managed funds, buying companies directly, or buying companies that invest in other companies on behalf of its shareholders. To explain, I'm joined by Sean Wyke from Wilson Asset Management. Hello, Sean. Hi, Phil. Great to be here. Thanks very much uh, for your time and inviting me on your podcast. Thanks very much for coming on. Now, Sean joined Wilson Asset Management in 2020 and works within WAM Capital, WAM Microcap, WAM Research and WAM Active. Sean has more than 10 years experience in financial markets working as a sell-side analyst at Macquarie Group and CLSA. And of course, my first question is, because we love busting jargon on this podcast, is what is a sell-side analyst? Yeah, I mean, this is one that always creates a great level of confusion, not only with my friends, but my mum and dad also. I, don't, I still don't <laughs> think they understand what I actually do. But yeah, a sell-side analyst essentially works for an investment bank or an independent stockbroking company providing investment research and recommendations to fund managers who sit on what we term the buy side, which is where I sit today. So yeah, my day-to-day job on the sell side was really you know, publishing research and then getting on the phone and calling investors and fund managers and essentially broking them my ideas. So a broker or a sell-side analyst essentially earns their crust are really based on trading commissions when fund managers choose to buy and sell stocks through them. And so you're making recommendations for selling, is that why it's called sell-side? No, both buy and sell recommendations. I think really it's just turned the sell-side as a result of the fact that you know, a big part of these businesses is what's called ECM, equity capital markets work, where you're essentially raising money and you're trying to sell these deals, if you like, to to investors. So that's really where the term sort of was germated from. And were you interested in investing in finance from a young age? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I became more and more interested in investing and in, in finance throughout high school. You know, my dad played in, in the share market a little bit. I know he owned some Lahir Gold when it got taken out by Newcrest, you know, many years ago. So I've always had a sort of an interest, I suppose, in the markets. And, you know, my parents worked in real estate. So every day after school, I sort of found myself knocking about in the office and learning about, you know, real estate and the housing market, which I also find, you know, really interesting. And I guess my love for investing just continued to grow throughout university. And I joined KPMG in the merger and acquisitions team as a graduate, sort of fresh out of university here down in Sydney at around 10 years ago. And it was really through those initial years that I realized that investing and, and markets was where my, my passion lied. 
And um, how did you find um, investing yourself with your own personal account? Uh, did you make any mistakes or did you sort of glide into it smoothly? No, I had plenty of mistakes. The worst thing that can happen for an aspiring investor is that their, you know, first or, or their first couple of investments are really successful because overconfidence definitely breeds, um, you know, bad behaviors in the market. So, yeah, no, I had, a, I had a bit of a patchy track record, I think, sort of investing on my own account. But I think that's where you learn the most is when, you know, you've made a few mistakes and all investors are going to make mistakes. And, you know, the best stock pickers in the world get six out of their 10 calls right. So, you know, it's just a, a part of the game that you learn to live with. It's all about managing, you know, position size and, and risk, I suppose, around that. Yeah, I was talking to a financial educator recently and he said that he'd seen grown, professional, mature adults suddenly turn into 16-year-olds that um, have been given a Lamborghini that's got a bottle of whiskey on the passenger seat. <laughs> no, that's dead right. I mean, the environment that we've lived in over the past couple of years in particular with you know, these whole new asset classes like cryptocurrencies just spawning up out of nowhere you know, the level of FOMO out there in the investment world was, you know, truly phenomenal. So no, it, it has, it, it can suck the best of us in, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> can you share any of your mistakes or even just one in particular that uh, listeners might uh, learn something from? Yeah, I think um, in the early days, I think I was probably too much on the, you know, buy and hold and think very, very long term. And, you know, these certain companies or stocks will you know, go up over time. I think you've got to remember that, you know, what you're invested in, you know, particularly when you invested in cyclical companies, cyclical industries, they're going to go through bouts of, you know, share prices, appreciation and volatility. So, yeah, I think you've just got to be very cognizant of what you're invested in and why, you know, as opposed to just trying to, you know, follow the hot theme or, or whatnot at the time. I mean, I think, I don't think there's many Australian investors that haven't got a horror story to share on a micro cap or small cap resources company. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where you were playing, was it, the micro cap? Yeah, I, I did a little bit of that in the early days, you know, the old chat down at the pub or whatnot. Oh, you know, have you heard of this gold company? You know, they're drilling this resource out in this area, et cetera, et cetera, which was, you know, never my forte to begin with. But yeah, for some reason, you, you tend to get sucked into the, oh, this could be a 10-bagger if they hit something. But um, yeah, it's certainly a lot harder to hit those real good quality resource deposits than what it's perhaps led on. And I think it's also because people don't want to put in the hard work. They want to be given a tip. They want to be given uh, an idea for buying rather than putting in the hard work to actually research and uh, gain some conviction in what they're doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's one of the most fundamental pieces of advice I'd give to, you know, to any young or starting out investor is, you know, read and just consume as much information as possible, you know, draw on as many sources as you can. And ultimately, it comes down to your own level of conviction and backing your own ideas, you know, if you are going to invest on your own behalf, because then when a stock falls 20%, you know, what are you doing? Are you buying, are you selling and why? So you do really need to do the work and, and you know, form your own investment thesis if you are going to, um, to invest yourself, definitely. Okay, let's get on to Wilson's. Wilson Asset Management is noted for the LIC structure. Why does Wilson's like the LIC structure and what is it? So a listed investment company is essentially, you know, I guess a product structure whereby our funds are listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. So that provides um, investors within our funds the ability to buy and sell their shares within our fund on the market. So I guess the key attraction of a listed investment company structure as a fund manager 
you know, is really that we don't have to worry about the risk of redemptions, particularly in down markets like we're seeing at the moment, which is when, you know, investors do tend to panic and, you know, you start to see them pulling mandates, which is, you know, something we're hearing a little bit about at the moment across the market here domestically. So, you know, our funds are closed end and the capital's permanent in nature, if you like, and that allows investors, you know, to buy and sell those shares on the ASX and not have to worry about, you know, a run on the a run on the fund, if you like, which can create some very negative outcomes for funds we've seen in the past. So I guess and it also enables us to take a longer term view and manage the capital in you know the best possible manner, which is ultimately to protect capital and drive the strongest returns for our shareholders that we can. It's interesting, the concept of closed-end and open-ended. So an ETF, for example, is known as open-ended, but um, LICs, listed investment companies, are closed-ended. How does it affect the way that they react to markets? Yeah, yeah, I guess it's an interesting point. I mean, what we've seen, I guess, for our business relative to, you know, ETFs out there and some other list investment companies is, you know, our funds typically trade at a premium to the underlying net tangible asset value. And I think the key reason being, aside from, you know, the long-term performance track record of the funds and, you know, has really been in in our ability to continue to provide fully frank, strong dividends, dividend growth to our to our investors. So, you know, that's another sort of core attraction of, you know, the LIC structure. You know, with an ETF, they're going to, you know, obviously trade in line with the underlying NTA. But, you know, Wilson Asset Management, we're very active in terms of, you know, our engagement with our shareholders and the market. You know, we're constantly out on the road or, or doing, you know, podcasts and things like that to ensure that our investor base, you know, both our existing investors and potential new investors, you know, remain engaged with the business. And, you know, that obviously helps to continue to draw interest in our products where, you know, some of these list investment companies you see trading, you know, 10, 20 percent discounts. And a big part of that is driven by, you know, in some instances performance, but often it's driven by the fact that they just lack engagement with potential shareholders so you know part of our strategies and you would have seen potentially would have saw you know wilson asset management the wilson strategic value product which really looks to go and you know adopt the classic warren buffett approach and buy 50 cents for a dollar where other list investment companies are trading for 70 to 80 cents and then we go and buy them for a dollar which provides a great outcome for the underlying investors in in those funds and then also hopefully provides them with the benefit of being invested with us going forward. Why is it that uh, LICs often trade at a discount? Uh, and just to clarify, it means that they're actually holding assets worth $100 as an example, but trading at a value of only $80, for example. Yeah, I mean, the key thing that I see that drives discounts is often, you know, if it's not a performance issue, it is typically driven by the fact that those fund managers, you know, may not necessarily be out there and engaging with potential investors and growing awareness and, you know, bringing new people in to invest in these funds. I think that's a that's a really big, big part of it. And then, yeah, I guess outside of that, you know, just the length and the extent of the track record and the confidence that they have in the underlying investment manager. Like we've seen some, you know, list investment companies launched in more recent memory you know, where the performance on the outset of the fund becoming a lick wasn't great. And then they quickly went to very big discounts to NTA as a result. So what are you finding interesting about markets at the moment? What's your bird's eye view of what's going on? Yeah, that's a, um, 
that's a very interesting question itself, and I could tackle that from many different angles. There's so much going on, but I think at a broad level, we're at a juncture in asset markets, really, where you know there's a few different dynamics at play, but the most important driver is the inflation outlook. So to be blunt, I mean, inflation just hasn't mattered for 40 years. So the personal experience of you know most investors, including myself, in today's market is that you know we haven't invested through a through an inflationary environment. So, you know, we really do have to look back into historical scenarios and situations and try and get a sense of, well, you know, what asset classes and work within that environment and then within what equities, what, you know, what sort of works. So I guess that backdrop was very important as it did determine what correlations you saw between assets. I mean, you take the example of stocks and bonds in an environment of low inflation, you know, they became very negatively correlated. You know, that's to say when stock prices fell, bond yields often fell too. And then bond prices went up, which offered great diversification benefits for investors. And the traditional 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds really did reign supreme in that environment. But in periods of high inflation, which you know, we're in at the moment, things don't necessarily look that way and the correlations between assets do change. And you can look at this in all sorts of ways. So in many respects, investors have become accustomed to the fact that growth was really the most important factor in the investment paradigm and I suppose drove both asset and sector allocations within equities. And, you know, within that as an example, you know, high growth companies such as the technology sector in the US has really been the stalwart of that and the FANG stocks, you know, that's what investors favoured because they were delivering growth and the ramification of that was significant multiple expansion. And I guess the other key factor within this is central banks. You know, they've essentially been unconstrained in their policy actions because if you think about a central bank, they're trying to do two things, really. They're trying to maximise employment and ensure price stability through keeping inflation under control. And, you know, if inflation is contained and not even close to out of control, central banks can just do anything in their power to make sure growth is being stimulated, you know, as soon as, I suppose, you see signs of weakness appear. So, we saw that through the GFC, through COVID, you know, central banks pushing interest rates to, to record lows, printing money through, you know, quantitative easing and, you know, coordinating with fiscal authorities to stimulate the economy and, and keep growth moving. So I think now, you know, the environment that we're in, once you have inflation running high, I mean, suddenly you have constraints on these central banks. And, you know, they have to focus on their dual mandate, which is to keep the economy going at the same time as keeping inflation under control. And, you know, where central banks are no longer unconstrained in their policy actions, they must act to tame inflation. And the investment landscape, I think, shifts to inflation being sort of the most important driver and asset allocations shift. And, and frankly, the assets that most people held for the last 10 or 15 years have become less attractive because they're no longer supported by that backdrop of central banks and low rates. So like if you're trying to draw parallels, I suppose, to history, I mean, I sort of look at the 1970s as the most logical analogy, albeit the economy is very different back then to it is now. But, you know, you had high inflation from, you know, a strong demand backdrop. You had fiscal and monetary stimulus. And you also had external commodity market stocks at that time, which was from, you know, the Middle East and the and the Gulf War. And, and it was a period like now where oil is going through the roof in price. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, Today we're seeing, yeah, as you said, I mean, a combination of these exogenous factors, you know, we've had COVID, 
which has really caused, I suppose, a fracturing of supply chains. You know, we're seeing the mentality shift a lot from just in time to just in case, which is meaning sort of a level of deglobalization and reshoring or onshoring of manufacturing is a is a common theme we hear about. And then, you know, obviously you've got the Russia-Ukraine conflict as well. So there's a lot going on, but I sort of think about the outlook in that, you know, the Fed's sort of caught between a rock and a hard place and they're being viewed by the equity market as being behind the eight ball with the result being that one of the fastest, if not the fastest interest rate hiking cycle in history is being priced into markets. So I guess, what does that mean? Well, I think to summarize, I mean, inflation protection is something that needs to be considered within, you know, broader asset allocations, you know, going forward, whether it's diversification through increased exposure to commodities or inflation um, linked or floating rate credit and and just hard assets in general. I mean, gold's always talked about as inflation hedge, although I admit, you know, you would have thought that the circumstances couldn't be better for gold and it hasn't really done that much, but equally it hasn't gone down. So it is preserving wealth. But I think within equities, it really has caused a rethink of you know, what sectors people want to be in and ultimately what valuations, you know, investors are willing to pay. And we've sort of seen an unwind really, I suppose, you know, the last sort of 12 months, those high growth, unprofitable tech companies. I mean, many of those are down sort of 70 to 80% from their peaks last year. So yeah, I think within that sort of environment, you know, you've really got to be thinking about where you want to play. And I guess if you look at the equity market itself here domestically, I mean, small to mid-cap industrials have been hit particularly hard. Investors have preferred larger companies in sectors such as financials and resources. And, you know, they also have the benefit of from rising rates, but also liquidity. As risk appetite reduces, investors like to move up, I guess, the liquidity curve. And, you know, the ASX trend industrials, I mean, the index peaked around 23, 24 times, I think it was in you know, the later stages of 2021, it's currently trading around 18 times forward earnings and the long-term average is sort of 16 to 17 times. So we think, I guess, a lot of the pain from a valuation standpoint has played out. There may be a bit more downside to go, but we do think, you know, a lot of that has taken place. And I think, you know, on the equity market itself, I mean, from here, I think it's really going to be driven by inflation expectations. And, you know, as a result of that, the speed and the level of interest rate rises. And ultimately, I suppose, whether central banks can raise rates and deliver a soft landing of the economy and and not trigger a recession. So that's sort of the backdrop that we're playing in. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to ride the waves, huh? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're also conscious of the fact that, you know, you look at some of the recent surveys, they suggest like the Bank of America Institutional Invest Survey, great survey, really like going through that each month. And, you know, investor sentiment's at the lowest level ever. <laughs> really? Because this doesn't look feel like the GFC to me. No, see, that's exactly right. I mean, it doesn't feel like the GFC. It doesn't feel as negative as COVID even. But yeah, the sentiment out there on the institutional side of things is, yeah, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So let's get back to Wilson and the criteria. What criteria do you apply to screen for quality companies? Yeah, sure. So... I mean, at Wilson Asset Management, yeah, we are bottom-up fundamental active managers. So we do place, you know, obviously a very strong focus on researching and, and assessing companies. You know, I guess for us, when screening for quality companies, we do focus on, I suppose, a number of characteristics. So, you know, we are looking for companies that operate within large market opportunities as I guess that provides real upside and potential for you know, an exuberant rating if management are able to successfully execute on the opportunity. Uh, we look for growing industries. It's a lot easier to execute on growth plans when you have tailwinds at your back and, you know, you don't have to rely on out-competing others in the market to take share. You know, we do place a strong focus on, you know, understanding the business model and, and the ability of this business to generate high returns. You know, it's often reflected through the term economic moat of a business, which is obviously a very common, I guess, characteristic described by the great Warren Buffett, which I'm sure a lot of your um, your listeners have, have heard of before. But, you know, that's really boils down to what's the distinct advantage of this company over its competitors? What allows it to protect its market share? And, you know, what factors are difficult to mimic or or duplicate, you know, out there in the market that ultimately will see these benefits, you know, flow to shareholders. So I sort of think of things like, you know, strong brand names like Nike, businesses with pricing power, which is particularly important in an inflationary environment. You know, look at Apple. I think the new iPhone's, you know, $2,400 or something. <laughs> I remember when they were half that. And then, you know, we look for business, you know, cost or scale advantages. Like you look at the Australian supermarkets, Woolworths and Coles, they're really able to leverage that that size and scale to be able to drive prices to the lowest and best for customers. And, you know, things like high switching costs, businesses like Microsoft, like how do you get off the Microsoft ecosystem? You know, we've been bought up with Excel. I can't imagine myself using any other spreadsheets at the moment. And then I'd say the other sort of key one, which has become more prevalent in recent years is, is really around network effects where, you know, the moat of the business becomes increasingly more powerful as more users are added. So I guess this is to be aware of, you know, the social networks like Instagram and Facebook where, you know, the more people that join them, it just becomes self-fulfilling. The quality of the network increases or, you know, marketplace businesses, you know, the likes of realestate.com, you know, Australia's favourite obsession property. The more properties are on there, the more, you know, you're going to get log onto those websites and search. So, that's sort of the way we look at business models. And I think outside of that, you know, you really are looking for assessing the quality and the capability of the management team and the corporate governance. I mean, one factor that we look at and we like investing in, you know, is around, I guess, founder-led businesses or management teams with significant skin in the game because that ensures alignment. You know, if the incentives of management are aligned with shareholders and we're all running for, you know, the same goalposts, then that tends to create good outcomes. And then I think, 
you know, a couple of factors that are probably more and more and, you know, increasingly important in this type of environment are strong balance sheets and I guess good earnings quality and cash flow. You want resilient balance sheets in these types of markets because, you know, management are then able to undertake opportunistic acquisitions and create real value for shareholders or avoid dilution, you know, which at the moment, you know, we're hearing some fascinating stories play out in the venture capital land in particular for a lot of these high growth, unprofitable tech companies that have raised money at exorbitant valuations. And they're basically price takers at this point for anyone to give them money. So really, yeah, really interesting sort of dynamics playing out there too. Just the point about founder-led businesses, because it's often said that you want a founder-led business, but it can be a double-edged sword as well, because sometimes they're looking after themselves rather than shareholders. Have you had any experience of that? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. I mean, the one that I would sort of look at as the as the poster child for that is probably Tesla. You know, Elon Musk is a fascinating character, and no doubt, you know, he's an absolute genius. But there are often times where you do question whose interest he's ultimately acting in favour of. So, yeah, I think it can be a double edged sword. But my experience to date has has really reflected more of the former, in that you know, management teams that you know have significant shareholdings or yeah, particularly founders, like it's their baby in many instances. You know, look in the Australian market, you know, there's businesses like Objective Corporation, uh, SME software as a service provider, and Tony Walls there's done a fantastic job growing that business. And you know, he still owns, I think, 40 or 50% of the company. And, you know, he's drove really strong outcomes for shareholders. You know, other holdings in our portfolio, the likes of Mars Group, which we can go through in more detail later, you know, where's Mars it's essentially a diversified building materials and construction company based in regional Australia. He started that business with a Bobcat. He finished his career in NRL, started with one Bobcat, and it's now a $1.3 billion company. So, yeah, my experience has tended to be, to be positive, but, yeah, clearly it's not always going to work in your favour. <laughs> well, let's dig into Mars, and um, that's men from Mars, isn't it? That's what they used to put on their cranes, or do they still put that on their cranes? No, it's actually M-A-S-S, yeah, Mars Group. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm getting that wrong. Yep. <laughs> yeah, as I mentioned, it's a diversified building materials and construction company. They're based out in regional Australia. The success of the business is really due to some of its larger competitors like Borel and Simic. Simic, not until recently, which was bought out by its um, Spanish parent. Yeah, but they're choosing to focus their attention away from regional areas, which really does leave Mars with the opportunity to dominate its positioning in towns such as, you know, Dubbo, Orange and Tamworth, which are seeing, you know, population surge as I guess the effects of the pandemic see people, you know, increasingly want to move to these regional areas and significant investment in infrastructure in these areas as well. You know, staff and management own over 60% of the shares in the company and they're looking to continue to expand the business through accretive acquisitions. Actually, just as I was walking into this room, my phone flashed and they've made an acquisition. I haven't looked at that. Hopefully it's good. But yeah, we see a strong outlook for the business driven by, you know, I guess these significant construction projects that are happening, such as the inland rail, you know, the residential housing market in regional areas provides a much cheaper cost of living compared to cities. We think you will continue to see those sort of migration trends. And, you know, we believe the current run rate of the business before you, I guess, including any organic growth is at least 10% above the market's current earnings expectations. And, you know, we think the share price can double in three years. They're doing some really interesting stuff in, you know, commercial property as well, which, 
you know, could see the spin-off of a listed vehicle there at some point in the future. So, yeah, it has that sort of brickworks type feel or, or vibe or soul parts. So we, um, we're big fans of that one and what the management team are doing. And infrastructure is one of those sectors at the moment which seems to have a lot of tailwinds for many reasons, doesn't it? Yeah, that's dead right. I mean, we like the infrastructure space. I mean, exiting the pandemic, governments are looking to stimulate economies, you know, through investment in infrastructure. And, you know, we do think these businesses provide a reasonably good level of inflation protection given the contract mechanisms that are in place. So, yeah, companies like Downer, Downer EDI or Ventia, which are core, you know, maintenance and services providers, we think they're good places to be in the current market. So are there any other sectors that you're looking at apart from infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, the way that we're sort of thinking about, I guess, the market at the moment, you know, is really looking at, I guess, buckets or themes and then what sort of fits within that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess one sector or or theme that we like is really those stocks that have been significantly impacted by COVID and they will benefit from the reopening of the economy. So, you know, this includes, I guess, sectors like travel and leisure, such as Webjet, They actually reported their FI22 results yesterday and, you know, we caught up with management and the Webbed's, you know, hotel inventory business is tracking 20% above pre-COVID levels in May. And the Ford indicators for the European summer are very strong there. While you look at the domestic OTA, the online travel business, and it's already recovered to 75% of pre-COVID and is doing that rapidly you know, as these fears of Omnicom, you know, recede. And we think they've structurally lowered the cost base. We think it exits, you know, the pandemic with stronger margins and in a much stronger competitive position given, you know, some of its key competitors have just taken away too much debt and, you know, in my view are likely to fade off into the distance. (laughs) Just uh, before you go on, let's date stamp this episode as the 20th of May, 2022. uh, So listeners can get a fix on where and when we're talking about. And and just on the travel side of things, it was just interesting. um, We're both in Sydney and I don't know about you, but a couple of days ago, it just seemed like suddenly there's more planes in the sky. Did you get that? Absolutely. No, it's dead right. I mean, if you take a domestic trip, the lines at the airports at the moment are truly like I've never seen anything like it. I truly haven't. I I took a flight two weeks ago down to Melbourne one morning, and I was out the door at the Sydney Qantas terminal. <laughs> so no, it feels like it's absolutely roaring back at the moment. I think you know to some degree, and we are seeing it reflected in the the recent U.S. reporting season. We really are starting to see that spend shift from goods to services. And, um, you know, I'd like to go on my lunchtime runs, you know, here in the city around the Opera House. And I'm just noticing Opera Bar and just that whole area, which is obviously a very touristy part of Sydney. Like that's picked up so much in the last two months. Mm. So I interrupted. You were going to talk about another sector I think you were going to go on to. Oh, yeah, no, sure, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so so obviously we've spoken about travel. I mean, the other names we like within that travel space are corporate travel management and tourism holdings, which it owns and operates the largest camper van and caravan fleet in Australia and New Zealand. And I guess other other stocks that, you know, we've we've seen really impacted by COVID are, you know, the likes of Malt Barley producer United Malt Group, which supplies into, you know, the global beer companies, which, you know, will benefit from not only the reopening of, you know, on-premise consumption, but also normalisation of supply chains, given, I guess, the lag that sometimes occurs between, you know, their pricing mechanisms and cost inflation. Bega Cheese is another sort of business that we think, um, you know, fits that bill. 
yeah, we've spoke about, I guess, that maintenance um, and services that providers, which give you that leverage to, I guess, the infrastructure tailwinds, which, you know, Mars is obviously a beneficiary of as well. We like the insurance brokers like Steadfast and, and PSI. Obviously, that insurance cycle continues to harden with rates, you know, globally, given how low returns have been for insurers on bonds in, or their investment returns in recent years and just the level of catastrophes and weather events that we're seeing as well. Premiums seem to continue to go up. Yeah, and I guess, you know, we, we think in this market too, you know, stocks with hard asset backing that provide, I guess, an underpinning or a flaw to the share price. You know, you look at names like Select Harvest, which is an almond farmer and processor. You know, we think the underlying tangible value of the almond orchards itself is worth more than the current share price. And then you obviously get the upside of the operating business, which will benefit from, you know, I guess, an easing in these supply chain and congestion issues in the delivery of their product, you know, into offshore markets. Main Event is another one. Yeah, sorry, Main Event Cinema Operator Event Hospitality. It codes EVT on that one. That's another one we like. I mean, the underlying assets account for, you know, the majority of the share price. And obviously, as a hotel and and cinema provider will benefit from that sort of reopening trend as well. Yeah, we think quality growth is getting more and more interesting. Like the valuations on a lot of those stocks have have come back quite a long way. There's potentially some more derailing to play out there. So we're just sort of dipping our toes in around some of these names. But you know, the likes of IDP education, you know, which is leveraged to the, I guess, the global recovery in international student flows. ResMed is another business we think is very high quality. Um, it's been, you know, I guess impacted short term by supply chain challenges, but the backlog of patients seeking treatment for sleep apnea continues to build. We think the outlook there is very strong. It's an underlying market that still has, you know, significant growth potential. And then I think more broadly, just starting to pick the bones apart a little bit on you know, stocks within sectors that have derated significantly that we think are hated <laughs> by other investors where valuations, you know, are staying to look really interesting. Like an example there I would give is City Chic. You know, it's a plus size women's retailer. You know, it's a former market darling that, you know, probably at least a lot of investors out there had held. And, you know, there's real worries or concerns, I suppose, around the position they've taken on inventory leading in potentially a slow consumer environment. But yeah, I mean, that's one where management have proven themselves very, very capable. I mean, he took the business from 20 cents to $7 at its peak. And, you know, we think Phil, the CEO, there's a very, very good operator. So we're doing more and more work around names like that. And I think, you know, the sectors we're still avoiding, I mean, unprofitable tech, you know, which has obviously benefited so significantly from the opposite backdrop to what we're seeing now, you know, which we ran through earlier. It's just hard to see these businesses when the market's looking for them to reduce their cash burn, but then there's this risk that as you take down costs, reduce the cash burn, that your sales growth starts to fall. And then the multiples that the businesses then attract compress can compress dramatically. So, yeah, we think you've still got to be careful with that sector. And then the other space we're, I guess, cautious on in general is those stocks that are being perceived as defensive and investors of what we would term hiding in when they may not necessarily prove to be the case. So something like the consumer staples names, you know, I think fit into that bucket. And we saw a little bit of that in the market yesterday, actually, you know, when the offshore lead with the likes of, you know, the results reported by Walmart, 
you know, and Target, Aussie investors decided to, I guess, draw parallels to the supermarkets here and Matt Cash. So, yeah, we think you just got to be careful on some of those hidey holes, if you like. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I saw it on Twitter today. Someone posted a chart of the Walmart share price, which you'd think would be pretty robust in any economy. But um, how much has it gone down? I can't remember the actual percentage figure. I think it's down 30 to 40% now. Which seems a little strange, but I could be wrong. Who knows what uh, markets do? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that's the opportunity too when these things overshoot. So no, it's, um, it's fascinating. So Sean, you've given us a lot of tips here, a lot of stock tips. And of course, listeners shouldn't act on just tips as well. But um, people can get access to these via WAM funds and WAM LICs. So tell us about um, the best way of finding out more information. Yeah, definitely. Wilson Asset Management. So the funds that I, um, I guess, co-manage with a few other guys are WAM Capital, essentially the flagship you know, fund that's been around for over 20 years now and, and was obviously started by our, our founder, Jeff Wilson. And then there's also, you know, within that sort of stable, I suppose, is WAM Active, WAM Research and WAM Microcap. So these are all listed on the stock exchange. So they're like an ETF in, in a sense in that you can just buy and sell them on market and gain exposure to this um, investing thesis. Yeah, that's right. So the stock codes on those are WAM, WAA, WAX, and WMI. Of course, I'm very happy to talk to anyone that's interested in the funds. So I'm always available if anyone wants to speak to me. But yeah, our website's um, www.wilsonassetmanagement.com.au. And my email is, yeah, sean at wilsonassetmanagement.com.au. So if anyone wants to reach out and have a chat, I'm certainly more than happy to. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's uh, Sean with an S-H-A-U-N, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Like Sean the Sheep? Is it Sean the Sheep that's got that spelling? That's what my mum calls me. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you and we'll um, put those links in the show notes as well. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks very much, Phil. And um, thanks to all your listeners and, and good luck out there in the markets. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.